Hi there, and welcome to the Jeff MacArthur Podcast for Thursday, October 22nd. Coming up, rebuilding democracy from the ground up, the ongoing impact of COVID-19 on travel, and with Halloween looming, how you can tell if you're addicted to sugar. All of that coming up next on the pod. <sighs> okay, what was that? Honestly, what was that? Nearly 24 hours later, and there's plenty of people still trying to figure out what we saw play out in the nation's capital yesterday. I mean, what was with all the high drama? Jugmeet Singh holding a press conference, refusing to tell us all exactly how he and his party are going to vote. Essentially telling us, uh, tune in. You'll have to tune in and find out. And then we tuned in, and despite all the chest thumping and all of the rhetoric... Well, nothing really changed. I mean, the conservatives were calling the liberals corrupt. The liberals calling the conservatives callous for trying to force an election during a pandemic. And the NDP and Jagmeet Singh once again propping up the Trudeau minority government. So, as the smoke begins to clear, what should what should we all make of this? Well, let's ask our good friend Dave Meslin. He is the author, of course, of Teardown, Rebuilding Democracy from the Ground Up. And he joins us to lead things off here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Dave, good afternoon, and how are you? Hey, I'm great. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Well, uh, thanks for joining us. And first off, just yeah, give us your take, if you could, on yesterday. Did Canadian taxpayers, Dave, did they get their money's worth from their politicians yesterday? Do we ever get our money's worth from our politicians? <laughs> I mean, anyone who's ever watched Question Period, any any month, any week, any day, will leave that experience shaking their head and saying, really, these 338 people are are, are leading our country? Um, I mean, sadly, what happened yesterday was was par for the course. It's, it's political games. It's predictable. It is a lot of chest thumping. It's who can get the soundbite, who can be seen as the most aggressive and powerful and in charge. And you know who loses? We we all lose every time they play these games. And and it's a distraction from the actual issues that they should be talking about. I mean, we are in a pandemic and there is a there there is a global climate crisis. I'd rather have them actually talking about those issues than than the charades that they that they pull off all the time. I think we're all sick of it. So what if anything Dave did uh, yesterday tell us uh, in particular about our uh, system? I mean, has it become dysfunctional? Has it always been dysfunctional or I don't know, did the parliamentary system operate the way it was intended yesterday, do you think? I mean, both. I mean, in 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 the end calmer heads prevailed and we we weren't thrown into an unnecessary election on the other hand parliament designed parliament um acted the way it's designed to which which is hostility it's it's designed as a kind of almost militarized fight right like you put one group on one side one group on the other you literally call that second group the opposition, right? So it's like your your job description is just to fight and to oppose whatever the first group does, and then they just yell at each other like like mobs. So what we learned is that once again, I, I wouldn't say we learned anything. It was another reminder that we should really think about redesigning our legislative processes because we would all benefit from having 338 MPs who come together to listen to each other to put forward evidence-based, reasonable, thoughtful proposals, and then talk about them, debate them, and vote on them. Instead, we have a situation where 
Um, we have these fake majority governments often. Then we have minority governments, which are very unstable because everyone's trying to figure out when's the best time to topple them and go to the polls. But then within Parliament itself, and this is provincial and federal, all of our MPs and MPPs don't have a voice anymore. So all the power becomes centralized in the office of the leader. And when you have like three guys in charge of the whole country in an environment where they're separated into these mobs and teams, you're going to end up with a schoolyard fight. And there's so many reforms we could look at. This is what I propose in my book, Teardown. There's so many lessons we can learn from other countries where they use different mechanisms, different processes to bring out the best in our politicians instead of designing a system that's guaranteed to bring out their worst. Okay, well, I want to get to some recommendations with you in just a second. But first, uh, you bring up leaders and leadership. And I thought it was very telling Somewhat interesting yesterday when Jagmeet Singh said that the NDP were not going to give Justin Trudeau the election that he so desperately wants. Now, coming to that conclusion, they came to that conclusion, Dave, because the Liberals essentially refused to negotiate with the NDP. And that kind of left some people wondering, are ethics, is that something that should be negotiated? And is that... uh, what those who laid the groundwork for the parliamentary system, is that what they intended? I mean, in a minority situation, shouldn't you be negotiating things like budgetary items and, uh, I don't know, getting uh, to the bottom of potential unethical behavior? I mean, is that something that you really should be negotiating? No. First of all, if the NDP, the NDP's actions only prove that they didn't want an election. I don't think they care whether Justin Trudeau wants an election or not. Clearly, Trudeau was prepared to call their bluff. And um, the NDP obviously didn't want to play along. But in terms of the actual ethics issue here, and I think we can all agree, it's a much smaller issue than it's being blown out to be. Did Justin Trudeau made some probably really bad judgment calls by not excluding himself from cabinet votes. I think that's pretty clear at this point. And he he wasn't the only one. Um, Did anything happen that would meet any real criteria for corruption? I think that's pretty unlikely. Um, and But the, the, the main thing is we have independent offices that investigate these things. We have integrity commissioners. We have ombudsmen at all three levels of, of government. Um, just as if there was an issue at your workplace, if someone was acting inappropriately, you wouldn't all get together to talk about it. If it was controversial, you would bring in an outside facilitator or HR expert to take a look at it. For our MPs to be setting up their own corruption committees to to um, police each other, that's actually a conflict of interest. The last people I want policing MPs is MPs. Yeah, and not only that, Dave, but a company wouldn't come to a grinding halt either. And was yesterday set up on a bit of a false uh, premise? I mean, did it have to be an either-or? Either we look into potential corruption or unethical behavior, or we continue to look after Canadians during the pandemic? I mean, can't you do both? I think it achieved exactly what it was supposed to achieve. All all three leaders were trying to get their soundbite in the media, and to varying degrees, they, they all did. Um, you know, part, I mean, part of the blame here probably rests on the media. Um, I don't know how to fix this, but the media loves a good fight, let's be honest. So if the House of Commons actually had a day where they just sat down and talked reasonably about an issue, I don't know if anyone gets a soundbite, <laughs> right? So, Oh, yeah, um, we, we were bees to honey yesterday, for sure. <laughs> right. So, you know, if, if, if 
to be fair to the parties, even though I'm criticizing them for playing all these games, if I worked in a leader's office and I was like, how do we get the media's attention today? I might be, I might think about how do, how do we start a fight? So that's a tough one. That's a tough nut to crack, but the media might want to take a look in the mirror and, and, and figure out, is there a way that we don't necessarily have to play along with these games just because we're being invited to. And I'm not trying to put myself in your shoes. I totally, I totally get, I totally get why, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, but it probably is a problem. Yeah, but what we saw yesterday, just before, again, we get to some uh, potential solutions and how we can maybe fix the system to work a little better. What we saw yesterday, Dave, is that the sort of thing that just makes the average Canadian and Canadian voters just sort of shake their heads in disbelief and really shakes voters' belief in our leaders to lead and in our politicians? I think it's too late for that. I mean, the largest voting bloc in the last election was the people who stayed at home and didn't even vote. That was larger than... The votes the conservatives got it was larger than the vote the liberals got. So we're we're way past that point. Um, I guess the question is is are we are we past the point of no return? <laughs> are, are, can we fix our political system so people tar- start tuning in? I'll bet if you walked out in the street right now and randomly asked ten people about what happened yesterday, they wouldn't even know what you were talking about. We, we've completely tuned out politics as a charade and like a caricature of what it could be. Um, many, many years ago, if not decades. All right. So just finally, is there anything we can do? Is there a substantive change, something that you would change if you could, Dave, that would uh, render something like what we saw yesterday, that sort of political spectacle inside the Ottawa bubble, uh, render it, uh, you know, useless or that we wouldn't see it again? Yeah, for sure. Um, And first of all, I don't want to claim to be a guru with all the answers, but there's definitely ideas that I can pitch that I think are all worth trying. And the only way you'll find out if they work is by is by trying them out. So the first thing we have to do is let go of the idea that the House of Commons should be designed based on rigid ritual and tradition. And we should just do something a certain way because be, 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 because it's worked for 100 years, because it's not working. We're not getting the representation that we deserve and the amount of thoughtful dialogue that we need. So once we crack that open and we say, okay, we could design this differently, first of all, I think we need to decentralize power in the House of Commons. So the MPs that you and I send representing our writings actually have a voice, because I think we'd all agree that when you have two or three people in a room fighting um, you're more likely to have thoughtful dialogue when you can have dialogue amongst a larger group um, and more likely for someone to stand up and say, hey, why don't we all stop fighting? Um, when you have all the, all the MPs being whipped on every vote, they're more likely to act like a mob. And if we can decentralize power within the parties, more thoughtful minds might rise to the top. Um, the other thing is, we could do really fun experiments that are as simple as mixing up the seats and having randomized seating in the House of Commons. And this might sound silly to you, but I actually think it would make a huge difference. And there's countries that have already done this, and it's worked. So the idea is that if all the liberals are sitting on one side, all the conservatives are on the other, and they're sitting literally as a mob, then when one of them stands up and heckles the other side, they all clap and act like a mob. Right. And then the other side responds. But if you were literally a liberal MP with a conservative on your left, a new Democrat on your right, and a green behind you, and you actually talk to each other, you look at pictures of your kids on your phone, you share your snacks, 
you can't stand up as a mob and act like a mob because you'd be attacking the guy you were just chatting with beside you. It could create a whole level of humanity and empathy in the House of Commons. I think that would be really fun to try, even for one day a year, to see what would happen. And then the third main thing, of course, is we should look at changing our voting system. And I know there's been so many discussions, and Trudeau promised he would do it, and then he didn't do it. But when we look at systems like they use in most Western countries, we often focus on how it would change the outcome in terms of mathematics. So, like, if the Green Party gets 10% of the vote in New Zealand, they get 10% of the seats. That's more fair. But more importantly, countries that use proportional systems or semi-proportional systems or hybrid systems, they're more likely to end up with stable coalition governments where three or four parties are actually working together. And that doesn't work in some countries. Italy and Israel, I know, are disasters, but they're the outliers. If you look at Sweden, Finland, Germany, New Zealand, Australia, you name it, um, pretty much any European country, um, stable coalition governments with way more collaboration than we've ever seen in Canada. Why wouldn't we give that a try and see how it goes? Yeah, I love that about the seating arrangement, by the way. It really does get uh, rid of the us versus them uh, dynamic, which uh, yeah. really, really is, uh, you know, standing in the way of a lot of uh, progress, I think, right now. Dave, thank you so much for the time, as always, and for the uh, thoughtfulness on this uh, topic. Anytime. Thanks for having me on the show. Take care. You as well. There goes uh, Dave Meslin. Again, he is the author of the book Teardown, Rebuilding Democracy from the Ground Up. Okay, I love this next story. Air Canada and WestJet, they are thrown down. Thrown down on Twitter today. Big headlines from WestJet early today. They say they were going to be the first Canadian airline to offer cash refunds for canceled uh, flights due to the pandemic, rather than just travel vouchers. But now, as I mentioned, a Twitter feud has broken out as Air Canada is like, uh, WestJet, not so fast. Actually, that tweet is misleading. So who's right, who's wrong? Let's ask Canada's travel guide. Jim Byers joins us here now on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Jim, good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. How are you? <laughs> I'm okay. I'm watching this uh, with a bit of a chuckle, but uh, who's right, who's wrong here? Has Air Canada, as they uh, suggest on Twitter, Jim, been giving out cash refunds? Yes, they were, but not to the extent that WestJet says they are going to be doing so. So some of this, I, in fairness, is WestJet's fault. They put out a press release last night about 5.30 Eastern time saying that we are going to be refunding instead of just giving vouchers, they will refund people for uh, for their flights if the flights were canceled by WestJet. Not if you canceled them, but if WestJet canceled them. So then they said, as there was a little footnote, and if you went to the WestJet website, it said, this does not apply to basic slash non-refundable fares. Based on that, that was pretty similar if you ask our candidates Air Canada to what Air Canada was doing. Air Canada a few months ago said they would refund people who had refundable tickets, but they wouldn't give refunds if you bought a basic or non-refundable fare. So at that point in time, as of about 7.30 last night, I thought they were both kind of doing the same thing. Okay. And then WestJet, lo and behold, puts out Air Canada puts out something on Twitter saying, ha, 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 you're just doing the same thing we are. Twitter uh, gets a, a message then from WestJet an hour later saying, no, actually, we are including basic fares. So even if you had a non-refundable fare, we will now refund your money. So as of this morning, 
as of this afternoon, WestJet may be a little bit in the lead on the refundometer. Uh, but <laughs> it could change. It could change at any time. It's been a little crazy. Okay, what about those that have taken travel vouchers? Do we know, Jim, I mean, whether it's with WestJet or Air Canada, can they now, under this new policy, cash those in and get their money back? That is a good question. I didn't see that addressed on uh, on the WestJet website, uh, Jeff, so you, you would think so. Um, and that certainly would be more than fair because somebody might say, look, I really don't want this voucher. I'd like to get my money back. So uh, I, I presume that that's the case, but I did not see it addressed. Now, of course, the other thing is WestJet says this is going to take them six to nine months. Seems like an awful long time. Uh, but that's what they say they're going to do. And I think most people will be just happy enough to, to get their money back and you know they won't care whether it's April or, or June of next year. Yeah, it's kind of a good news, bad news thing. Is good news, you can get your money back. Bad news is just not right now. <laughs> not right now, exactly. So yeah. it's just been kind of a crazy couple of days. If you've got the choice, getting money back or travel voucher, is one option better over the other? No, I don't think so. It, it's all a matter of personal, uh, personal preference. Um, you know, you could argue that if you think airline prices are going to go up a year from now because they have to make up for lost revenue, maybe that 500 bucks isn't as valuable in October of next year as it would be from the voucher. But I think it's kind of a uh, either-or sort of thing, and it really depends on on how much you want to travel, Jeff. If you, you don't, if you're one of those people who's like, I ain't going anywhere till there's a vaccine, you're probably going to want your money back. If you're somebody like me who travels, you know, on a regular basis, they're like, yeah, vouchers just fine. Personal preference. Okay, at the end of all this, uh, Jim, despite the Passengers' Bill of Rights, has COVID and the pandemic, has it proven that Canadian travelers uh, still need some better protections? Well, certainly if you ask the uh, uh, the protection people, there's a lot of talk about that. You know, the, over the last couple of days, uh, or last couple of weeks, you know, the, the Canadian Airlines, Jeff, have been saying, look, we need dedicated money, dedicated bailout money, because uh, airlines have been given things like CERB and the CEWS program, and, and, you know, they've been given some wage relief, but they haven't had any anything specifically targeted at the airline aviation industry the way the U.S. and Germany and, and other countries have done. So they've been saying we need some direct relief. And the Liberals and the Conservatives and the NDP have all said, no, 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 not until you give refunds. So there is a certain cynical uh, approach going around uh, the Internet right now that says WestJet is doing this because they want to get a bailout. And this was a precursor or requirement in order for them to get a bailout was to provide those refunds. We'll find out. Joined on the line by Jim Byers, Canada's travel guy. Jim, also want to ask you about some breaking news we've got this afternoon regarding travel and air flight. The federal government announcing that they're going to replace the 14-day mandatory quarantine for anybody coming into the country from an international flight with rapid testing. I mean, this is a pretty substantial move, a pretty big change, and really a game changer when it comes to the travel business. Yeah, if that's exactly what happens, and, and there's kind of conflicting stories again on this, so uh, it's not quite a Twitter war, but there is a bit of a, a difference in opinion. The, the Toronto Sun published a story, much to what you just said, Jeff, that this is something that the, the federal government is bringing in. Uh, WestJet released a statement literally 15, 20 minutes ago that said, no, in fact, what's happening is that Calgary Airport will bring in a test program which would do that, which would say, okay, international travelers, not necessarily Canadians from what I can see, but international travelers arriving at Calgary Airport will have the opportunity to take a test and won't have to quarantine except until until they get the actual results of the test, which might take two days. There is some discussion that says if this works in Calgary, this is a test pilot after all, test program, if this works in Calgary, it could be ruled out 
could be rolled out to the airports in the country. If that happens, you're absolutely right. It's huge because nobody wants to come to Canada and undergo a quarantine, especially in, in wintertime, uh, for 14 days. Canadians don't want to do it either. So if they can somehow replace a 14-day quarantine with a two-day waiting period, it would go a long way to opening up travel and would really uh, be a big boost to you know cities and, and tourism uh, folks across Canada and a big boost for Canadians who want to travel to do other parts of the world. Yeah, without a doubt. Of course, there's a lot of questions regarding rapid testing and their efficacy and just how accurate they truly are. I won't ask you to comment on that because neither of us are doctors. But uh, if this does go through, this seems to be uh, or could be a potential lifeline for Canadian airlines, which are really struggling right now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the traffic is in some cases, you know, five or ten percent of what it, of what it was. You know, we saw uh, just last week where WestJet, you know, canceled what was it, like eighty percent of their uh, flights uh, flight coverage in in Atlantic Canada. You know, it's it's devastating for you know cities like Charlottetown and and Moncton and Sydney, Nova Scotia. So. Uh, yeah, you're right, Jeff. If, if we can bring in a 14-day, if it's a potential two-day quarantine versus a 14-day quarantine, I'm not going to say the floodgates are going to open, but you're going to get a lot more people on those flights, which is going to help the airlines. It's going to help the people who cater the airlines. It's going to help hotel workers. It's going to help people all down the line in the, in the tourism industry. Yeah, we'll have incredible ripple effects. You're absolutely right. Jim, thanks as always for the time. Really appreciate you coming on. Okay, Jeff. Take care. Have a good day. Yeah, be well. Jim Byers is Canada's travel guy. Thursday afternoon, time for a weekly wellness check. Here's wellness expert Laura DeSanctis. She's on Instagram at Go With Your Gut. Laura, good afternoon. How are you? Hi, Jeff. Good afternoon. Okay, little early Friday. Yes, we're getting there. We're getting there, and we're a little over a week away from Halloween, which of course means lots of candy. So we wanted this week on our wellness check to talk about sugar. And first off. Is sugar, I mean, it's got a bad name, right? But is sugar, is it necessarily bad for us, or is it something that our body actually uses and needs? Um, really good question. I think it depends on the type of sugar that uh, we're consuming. If it's white, processed, or refined sugars, it's definitely um, worse for us. But again, uh, our body does need sugar. We do need glucose to function, to think, to move, to give us energy. So there's pros and cons to sugar. My biggest concern really is, are we addicted to sugar? And then again, what's the type of sugar? Right. So natural like occurring sugar? sugars are better than the white processed, but so we shouldn't necessarily be upset if we get like an orange in our trick-or-treat bag? Oh, I mean, I don't think that's going <laughs> to happen. I'm not even sure what's going to happen with Halloween this year, but it's... I. I mean, at least when I was a kid, I never had oranges or any type of fruits. Did you? Uh, occasionally, I would get one, and I would think, why, why is somebody handing me fruit? I want an arrow bar. Where's my coffee crisp? Where's my arrow bar? But uh, the, the chocolate and the candy, right? Bring it on. Yeah, absolutely. So to your point, though, it is possible uh, to be addicted to sugar? It is. It definitely is. And I think a lot of us don't even realize that we're addicted to sugar, but... I think, um, and how to know if you're addicted for to a sugar is really asking yourself, like, how do you feel when you're craving sugar? Is it something that you can't stop thinking about? Does it uh, consume you? And then when you eat it, um, do you feel like there's gonna? Do you feel that you want it even more? 
And then when you think about it, how, how does your willpower, do you like melt at thinking about ice cream or do you really like when you think about a chocolate bar or even candy, do you think like I need to have it right now and your cravings won't stop till you get it? So that is one clear indication or telltale sign that you're addicted to sugar. Um, and then the second is after you give into your cravings, you have like any physical discomfort. So some people will get like stomach uh, pains or cramps or swollen joints migraine headaches. Some people even get skin outbreaks because um, they're eating so much sugar. So those are telltale signs to look at if you're addicted. Yeah. So our body has a chemical reaction to sugar. It can actually crave it uh, maybe much like some people might crave caffeine and can't get enough coffee. Caffeine, alcohol, um, they all have addictive properties to it, but especially sugar. So I find even when we have caffeine, a lot of people will add in the sugar or they'll add in a sweetener. So that's the first thing when they start their day is you're already having sugar. All right. So what is your advice for people that are having these sugar cravings and are maybe a concern that they are indeed addicted to sugar? Mm-hmm. I, one of my... Um, One of the things that I like to tell people is really to look for unexpected sources of sugar. So, I mean, we know that candy and cake, we know we're eating sugar, but there's a lot of added sugar in a lot of the things that North Americans eat. So, on average, I think uh, we eat 22 teaspoons of sugar daily if uh, you're eating a lot of processed foods. So, if you do feel like you're craving a lot of sugar, look into uh, the calorie content and look into the back packaging, the nutrition label, to see how much sugar is included um, in, let's say, your breakfast cereal or granola bars. Even uh, condiments and tomato sauce have sugar in it. Bread, juice, dairy products, they all have sugar in it. So you want to avoid those or at least try to wean yourself off of them slowly. And then if you do want to try, if you can do this, and I mean, it might be hard around Halloween, but if you really want to try, try a seven-day no-sugar challenge. Ooh, that does sound tough. (laughs) (laughs) It is tough. Some people have done it for a few months, and they've said that their taste buds change. um, And then when they do put sugar back into their diet, it does seem to taste a lot sweeter. But really, I like to encourage people, read your nutrition labels, look at the added sugars. I mean, we do know that there is sugar in candy. That's a no-brainer in our cookies and our pies and baked goods. But essentially, sugar is in everything. So look at, again, like the dairy products. Look at your juice, your breads. Condiments are a big one. Crackers. Even chips have sugar in them. Oh, really? Okay, because I was going to ask you, you know, we always hear savory versus sweet, and you're usually one or the other. Is it possible that, uh, I mean, you could be addicted to salt and addicted to sugar, or does your body usually favor one over the other? I mean, personally, I feel it depends on how tired I am. Um, If I'm lacking certain nutrients in my diet, I will crave both. But I think it's really, it's dependent on every person. Everyone responds differently. Absolutely. And uh, finally, like anything and everything, really, uh, moderation is is the key, right? Particularly around this time of year as we're talking about uh, Halloween. And obviously, there's going to be an influx of uh, candy in your uh, household. Uh, You know, sugar and candy isn't necessarily bad. Just use it and have it in moderation. That's right. I always say, I always like to tell people, practice the 80-20 rule. So 80% of the time, try to eat really healthy. And then when you want to indulge once in a while and have your Halloween candy or sweets, definitely go for it. But just make sure that, uh, again, everything in moderation and you're having um, still a diet that's full of fiber and you're having enough fat and protein because those important macronutrients will really help as well. 
Well, as we know, like so many other things this year, it's going to be a Halloween like no other that we've uh, seen before. We encourage people to follow the advice of their local uh, health authorities and officials in the area that uh, they live. Having said all of that, don't you find this week to be particularly the most toughest week, the the toughest week of the mall, because you've got all that candy stockpiled and ready to go, and it's just sitting yeah, there? <laughs> like, how could you not, right? I think this would be the hardest time to probably try to do a no-sugar challenge or breaking your sugar habit, but... I, again, like moderation, if you want to have a few, but make sure you're having a whole foods diet with minimal processed food. I think that's great. But for me, I haven't bought any candy this year so uh, for Halloween, so it's out of sight, out of mind. All right. Laura DeSanctis, great stuff as always. Thanks so much. Thanks, Seth. Be well. Laura DeSanctis, our wellness expert, follower on Instagram at Go With Your Gut. And just a reminder that you can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 1 till 3 Eastern. Just tune in at 640toronto.com. Also, find us on Spotify, search my name, Jeff MacArthur, or download us wherever you find your favorite podcasts.